0: Well, a little bit of background to why we did Ephesians. Uh, in part, why not? It's, to me, the best book in the Bible. And I'll just go ahead and say it. I think it's the best book in the Bible. But a little bit more deep background is two things. One, when I was in uh, college, I must have been 19 or 20, I memorized Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And I made it a practice that semester, and I don't remember, maybe this is 91, 1991. I made it a practice to attempt Two, when I'm walking to class, just be going over it in my mind. When I'm taking a shower, going over it in my mind. Waking up in the morning, same thing. Laying in bed at night before I go to sleep, which I only last about 30 seconds most of the time. But nonetheless, trying to go over that in my mind. And I would say it was one of the most transformative times in my Christian life, meditating on that passage of Scripture. So I have that affection for Ephesians in the deep background of my life. And then this last year in 2021, when we were doing our annual fast, uh, when we were out at the JCF building one night, I was just really impressed in prayer with the passage in chapter two of Ephesians, where Paul praised that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And I just felt a conviction and a call to return to that in my own life, that I would be rooted and grounded in love, because that is... Being rooted and grounded in the love of God in Christ in our hearts is the engine of the Christian life. A confidence in that love is the power and possibility of the Christian life. And I just was drawn to that and convicted that I needed to return to that, that I needed to return to that my first love. So that's part, that's really one of the big reasons why we did Ephesians this time. Again, it's always a good reason to, but that was a very personal reason why we got into that. So tonight what I want to do is just take a structuring theme in Ephesians and go through it and draw out a couple of points. And the structuring theme is one that uh, Arara pointed out when we wrapped up Ephesians a while back. It is this pattern of sit, walk, stand that occurs throughout the book. All right, in the beginning of Ephesians, Paul talks about our being seated with Christ in heavenly places. He goes on to say repeatedly in many different ways that we're to walk out of this seatedness, if you will. We're to walk out of this place of blessing in Christ. And then finally, at the end of the letter, Paul says to stand. And so tonight, I just want to meditate briefly on those three sort of themes in Ephesians, that we're to sit in the grace of God, we're to walk out lives of love and service, and we are to stand against the enemy. So let's just look at those. I'll give quick references, but you can do this if you read through Ephesians. Just find all those places he says each one of those. So first, Ephesians 1.20. Paul is praying that they would know this power that is given to us in the gospel. And he says of this power, it's the power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. It's what we just sang about in that hymn, that God raised Christ to be seated in heavenly places far above all rule and authority, and that everyone who has ever lived will one day acknowledge his greatness and his authority. So Jesus is enthroned, and he himself is seated at rest, having finished his work on the cross. But then Paul says this magnificent thing in Ephesians 2, 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we start the Christian life seated. We start the Christian life. It must start seated. I think it's very important that the book of Ephesians is a kind of a liturgy, if you will. It's a kind of a guide to a a gathering of Christians. It's a worship service, and it starts with the goodness of God and the seatedness of the people of God in Christ absorbing all the blessings and goodness of God. In Psalm 1, it talks about, um, it it opens with, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands not in the way of the sinner, and doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. Sitting is the Bible's image for the the most intimate kind of association. It's identification, right? Uh, Bad company corrupts good character, and where you sit in life, where your heart sits in life, is who you become, And so seatedness, being seated in Scripture, think about this image throughout Scripture. It's an image of reception, receiving. It's an image of delight. It's the place that Mary sat when her sister Martha was working hurriedly and frantically and worriedly. And of course, Jesus said, oh, no, she's chosen the better thing to sit at my seat and receive sit at my feet and receive my teaching. She's chosen the better part. There's only one thing necessary, and that is to sit and have our hearts warmed by the love and the teaching that comes to us in Christ. It's the posture that Peter had to take to have his feet washed by Jesus. And remember that Peter didn't want to do that. Remember that? He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus, you can't wash our feet. We'll wash your feet. And of course, Jesus corrects him very swiftly It was also the posture that Peter had to sit at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus restores him and he's sitting and he shared a meal with Jesus that Jesus provided and Jesus restores him three times. He's seated. And what I wanna suggest is this seatedness is this place of receiving the goodness and the grace of God and the love of God. This is where heart religion is formed. This is where we go from hearing information about Jesus to letting our heart be awakened and enlivened by his love so that everything about us is changed by his love. We're called in Scripture to taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? And maybe I could put it this way. You read Ephesians, you read those those verses that I memorized in college. And I could put it this way, an unemotional flat response to those words is insane. Because that's reality. God has lavished his love on us in Christ, in great wisdom and kindness and generosity of heart. And if you can't respond to that, you're insane. It's irrational. It doesn't correspond to the way reality is. If you see a snake, unless you're the the Australian guy that died. What's his name? Steve Irwin. Irwin. If you see a snake, you know what the, the rational thing to do is? Beware. If not, run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. And when you see the love of God in Christ, the rational thing to do is rejoice and receive it. Believing the word of God and letting it warm your heart. Those words call for delight. They call for song. They call for thanksgiving. But I think it's important that we acknowledge that it is hard for us to do that. And there's all kinds of reasons it's hard for us to do that. But it is hard for us to believe God loves me. It's very hard. One of my favorite poems. Everybody have a favorite poem? One of these nights I'm going to preach on poetry. This is a total tangent. If you don't like poetry, you don't like 40 to 50% of the Bible. Okay? That's a teaser for that sermon. I want to read this sermon. This This is by George Herbert, one of the greatest poets ever. And it personifies love. It it personifies love, and you can think, if you hear love, you can think Jesus. Love, bade me welcome. Yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then... I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. See, one response is to think, well, I don't deserve to be here. And love acknowledges, no, you don't. But I will make you worthy to be here. Another response is to identify all the reasons why we don't deserve to get God's love. And he acknowledges them them all and is not surprised by any of them and says, I bore the blame. And then a response is, well, let me serve so somehow I can begin to be worthy. And love says, sit down and eat my meat. Sit down and receive the love and the grace that the Father lavishes on us in his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're called to walk. We're called to give ourselves to all kinds of beautiful deeds that Paul will go on and celebrate. But a cold heart and an empty head will make them dead works. A heart not warmed by the love of God and a heart that is not full of the truths of Scripture will make them dead works. We need the Holy Spirit that he pours out on us richly to warm our hearts, to strengthen, as Paul says, our inner man so that we are deeply rooted, that all that we do doesn't come from earning or impressing or anything else, but comes from gratitude and delight and joy. I want to read a quote by a guy named Adolf Sapir. He lived about um, 200 years ago. I'm going to read it slowly. Stick with me. Start daily and often with the joy of God's salvation and end always with the praise of God. Begin with the gospel, the glad tidings of God's love in Christ. Say to yourself, he first loved me. I have obtained mercy. God has given me Christ. Let your heart first be established by grace. Rejoice in the Lord. Do not think of giving unto God until you have received from him. Do not think of giving unto God until you have received of him. And let no sense of your unworthiness prevent you taking hold of the boundless and all-sufficient grace of God. A sense of divine love will keep you more humble, more loving, more active and fervent in service than anything else. This is the only starting point in the Christian life. And by the way... If you think, well, yeah, but I have this terrible pattern where I, you know, I come into God and I find forgiveness and I go and I mess up all the more reason. Because if you sit and if you receive, you will be humbled by who you are. You will be humbled by who he is and you will slowly be changed in the way he wants to change you. Amen. So my question for this section is how can you warm your heart in the love of God in Christ? How can you start from a place of receiving and seatedness, even though that's not a good word, so that your heart is warmed and so that your identity is rooted in the love of God? All right, the next section, walk. Hopefully, if you read Ephesians enough, you notice that Paul uses this image of walking again and again and again. It's his favorite image for the way we conduct our lives as Christians, for what we do, so very quickly, Ephesians 2.10, we are his work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in them. So God is making us, and he made all kinds of beautiful acts of service and love that we, he wants us to walk in. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says, listen, guys, you can fail to walk in a way that's a fitting response to the love that's been lavished on you. Don't fail to do so. You don't have to fail to do so. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You'll remember that Jesus, when he says what the greatest commandment is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, adds in the Gospels and with all your mind. Okay, you can't read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 with a soft mind. It needs the help of God to sharpen up and see all of the things that God is saying. Five two, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And finally, 5.15, Paul says this, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So this is the act of life. This is what Martha was doing but she was doing it not from a starting place of being seated at the feet of Jesus and receiving his teaching and love, but at the place of need, at the place of urgency, in the flow of the day to day. It's the active life, though, that Paul is calling us to that flows from that place of reception that Paul is commending here. He spends three chapters trying to drill it into our heads and our hearts and praying that God would do the same before he gets to the walking that he calls us to. But I want you to notice this image of walking. I would say it's Scripture's favorite image for how we're to live our lives. God tells Abraham, Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. But I would say it's especially Paul's favorite image. But think about the image. It's humble. It's super simple. Walking is one of the most basic things we do in life. We're excited when a baby learns to walk. It's something we take for granted. He doesn't say, notice, run. Now, I know Paul says run in other places, but he doesn't say run here. He says walk. It's slow. Walking is slow. The average human, anybody know how fast they walk? The average human all around the planet, three miles an hour. That's the speed of God. Three miles an hour. Jesus took three years walking literally with his disciples. And by the way, you know, remember, remember Philip gets teleported. God probably could have, Jesus could have probably teleported around. That would have been more convenient, but he wanted them to walk. Because there's something about walking and learning. So I would suggest that God takes a long time, that this image of walking is this image of it takes a long time for God to teach us and to transform us. It took Jesus himself a long time walking with his own disciples, repeatedly telling them, I'm going to lay down my life for you and for the world. And they didn't get it. Walking is the speed of Jesus. And it's what he calls us to. And he calls us in these verses to nothing particularly fancy, He calls us to walk in acts of service for other people. And this can be so simple. I mean, if you think about Jesus' own life, he gave attention to a woman at a well. He gave attention to a non-Jewish woman in Samaria who had a sick kid and pestered him. He gave attention. He gives attention. So giving of your time, giving of your attention, Giving of the sweat of your brow to help the Cochrans move, a meal, a cup of cold water, the truth spoken in love, a text or a phone call—these are good works that God prepared in advance for us to walk in. And when we come from that place of receiving the love of God, we give those things out in love. And by the way, sometimes we do them when we don't feel loving. And by the way, that is where he works out the fruit of the Spirit in us. It's in the walking. It's in the trying to love. It's in the failing to love sometimes that he begins to work out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So sometimes it's nothing fancy. Now, some of us may be called to much greater things. But all the walking and all the doing that we are called to do flows from the place of a heart warmed by the love of God. And I said this a minute ago, I want to stress this again. Your mind influences how you walk. The darkened minds that we used to have, uh, Paul says, don't walk in those anymore. You've seen, hopefully, all the videos of people who are walking along looking at their phone and they walk into a pole or a hole or a fountain. I encourage you to look them up if you haven't looked them up. All right, they're great. It's an image of somebody whose mind is absorbed in the wrong place. We can't have empty heads as Christians and walk out the walk he's called us to. We're called to walk carefully. We're called to be thoughtful and thorough about how we walk. Paul stresses that we should, it's the same word there that that Luke uses when he says in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, I have thoroughly gone through all of this and I want to present to you a thorough account of all the things that have been fulfilled among us. Paul says you need to be thorough about your life, thoughtful about your life, not fearful, but thoughtful about your life and conduct your life in such a way that you're reflecting on the love of God and you're reflecting on the resources you have. So a good question for this walking section is how thorough, thoughtful, and deliberate are you about the conduct of your life, the conduct of your time? Finally, stand. Of course, last week, uh, Kelly shared with us uh, out of Daniel at the end of Daniel, of how uh, Daniel himself was made to stand by the touch of the angel. So Ephesians 6:11 says, "Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil." And two verses later, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now uh, there's a couple of things about standing that I'd like to point out first. In Scripture, one of the more common ways that we see people praying is standing. And if you look at the earliest Christian art, one of the most common images you see is of Christians standing like this in prayer with hands upraised. And part of this is because this is an identification with Christ, right? Christ was crucified on the cross. And on the cross, he he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when we stand in prayer, we are identifying with Christ crucified on our behalf. That's the armor that we're putting on, Christ himself. Identifying with him and praying in conjunction with the prayers that he prays. And I would suggest that this image that Paul gives us is one of stability and firmness and not conquest. The victory has been won, as we sang last week. Christ has defeated the enemy. We are to stand in his victory. We're to be stable in his victory, not backing down, not giving up, rooted and grounded in love. And again, I can't help but going back to Psalm 1 again, where the images of a man who delights in God's teaching and therefore he is rooted. And therefore, nothing that goes on in the climate around him knocks him off his game. He is a match for any circumstance. He is a match for any situation that arises, not because situations that arise are not sometimes awful, but because his roots are deep in the truth of God's promises. And he's impervious to the winds of darkness that blow around him. Paul says, appropriate all the things that God has given us so that you can withstand the enemy. And I would suggest the enemy wants to do two things. I would sum it up this way. First, he wants to get us to doubt God's love. It's what he did in the garden, and it's what he does with us, tries to do with us every day, to doubt the love of God in Christ for us. Because when we doubt that, we go to other resources. We turn to other wells of water. And two, he wants to keep us from loving others. He wants to keep us from those works of service and love that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. So how do we fight? Well, we use all the provisions that God has given us. We use the promises of his word. And by the way, you have to be proficient in his word to use those promises. Everybody know what I mean? You can't be like, oh, my life's falling apart. Let me find something in the Bible that will speak to that. You need that there before the thing comes so you're ready for it, amen? There needs to be something you've laid hold of so that you're ready for the attack that will come. We, you, we fight with song and celebration, celebrating what God has done. We fight with love of others. We fight, as Kelly shared about last week in prayer. So sit, walk, stand. We're called to sit in the grace and goodness that we've received in Christ. To warm our hearts at the hearth of the Holy Spirit and to let our roots sink down deeper and deeper every day in the love of God so that we can walk in these beautiful acts of service and blessing of others and blessing of the world that he's called us to because he first loved us. And finally, we're called to stand. We're called to make use of all of the, the gracious equipment that he has given us so that we can withstand the enemy who wants to knock us off the path of love. If you're rooted in love, no circumstance will overwhelm you. Amen? Amen. Well, let's taste and see that the Lord.